0: This week's TribCast is presented by Raise Your Hand Texas. Raise Your Hand Texas identifies breakthrough ideas to improve education, pilots them in our public schools, and supports the conditions and public policies, allowing them to scale to benefit all Texas students. For more information, visit raiseyourhandtexas.org. We're also presented by the Holdsworth Center. Investment in education equals economic prosperity. The Holdsworth Center presents Elevate Ted, Education and the Economy. Space is limited. Register now at HoldsworthCenter.org. Texas
1: talking. Y'all.
0: what was that
1: that you
2: said? Texas talking. Ah, going hoop upside your head. Texas talking. Tell me who can you trust when Texas hides
1: are. And Texas
3: Hello, this is State Representative-elect Jessica Gonzalez from Dallas. And rumor has it in Austin that I'm coming to the Capitol to make trouble. And, well, I just want to confirm that. And now here's your host, Evan Smith.
0: Thank you. This is Evan Smith. I'm the CEO of Texas uh, Tribune. And uh, I am subbing today for Emily Ramshaw, who normally hosts this TribCast. She is off doing some Pulitzer Prize board crapola. Whatever it is that she's doing is not (laughs) nearly as important or interesting as this TribCast. But... She'll be back next week. Uh, today is Wednesday, April 11th. Welcome to this week's TribCast, our weekly conversation about the biggest issues in Texas politics. I'm joined this week by our executive editor, Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Our political reporter, Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. And for our first segment, State Representative Roland Gutierrez of San Antonio. Rep, Good afternoon. Thank welcome. You. Thank you. Th- thank you for being here. Uh, We are not here to talk about San Antonio and the legislature in some respects, not the work that Representative Gutierrez has done previously, but the work he would like to do as he has announced his intention to run for a Texas Senate seat that extends from San Antonio West. Representative, last time I looked, this seat was occupied.
4: Well, no, absolutely it is, Evan, and uh, my expectation is that that'll change soon. Uh,
0: what do you know that we don't know about that? We're talking, about, of course, about Carlos Uresti's seat, your fellow San Antonio, yeah, I, I, who has been in I, some legal trouble, and we don't yet know the resolution of this. No, absolutely. I yeah. mean, look, and
4: I try not to focus on Carlos's legal problems. I try to rather focus on the future of this community. But, uh, you know, he's got his sentencing coming up on the 25th of June, so I would expect that
0: at some point he might make the right decision, at least for himself. What is the right decision?
4: Well, I think he should resign.
0: Do you think he should resign absolutely. now, or do you think he should wait and, and see what the sentence is? Well, I'm going to leave that up to him,
4: but I think that things go even further south for him if by, he doesn't resign by June 25th.
0: Right. Ross, what is your, your, you're the institutional historian around here. <laughs> have, you're have, have people? Yeah, <laughs> Basically, that's what I'm saying. Have people in the situation that Senator Uresti finds himself in now been able to make a go of it in elective office, or is it almost always the case that they have to get out?
2: Well, it's almost always the case that they have to get out, but he's in a position where there is some, it's probably negligible, but there's some negotiation still possible here. He has not been sentenced yet. Yeah. It might be taken into consideration that he resigned in the sentencing. It might not be, but there's a conversation about that to be had before the sentencing and before you give up the, the office that you're holding. So he may be saying, well, you know, if I, if I just resign and take my chances with the court, the sentence will be X. If I stick around and say, how about if I resign and you take that into consideration in the sentencing
0: and maybe you get a lighter sentence that way? Have you had a conversation with Senator Oresti? No, we we
4: probably haven't talked in at least 18 months, I would imagine, (laughs) uh, since I started uh, talking to people in Senate District 19. And that's how long we've been campaigning.
2: 18 months? 18 months. So you were smelling this 18 months ago.
4: Well, look. It's 2016 sometime, Being a lawyer for 20 years, and you started seeing these things come out in the paper, then seeing the indictments, you kind of have a sense of things. And unfortunately for him, that indictment did not bode well for him, and certainly the subsequent conviction evidences that. Um, I think long term, you know, this is about building relationships. And so I started building those relationships in this community for quite some time. We're trying to go out and uh, change this community from within with new energy and new ideas.
0: You're not the only one who's uh, indicated interest in this seat. Former state representative and former congressional candidate and former congressman, Pete Gallego, who represented the western part of this district Mm -hmm. uh, when he was in the Texas House, has also announced that he's in this race. How do you feel about that?
4: Well, look. I mean, we don't really think about Peter or anybody else. We think about the people of Senate District 19. We're working hard. Uh, there's a reason we have 87 endorsements, and uh, it's because people trust what we're doing. You we're have flooded the zone in the endorsement universe. Yeah, I are, will Are you going
2: to have 87 that? candidates? I've heard. Of, you know, I've heard. <laughs> I've, seriously, I've heard of about a half dozen.
4: Oh, you know, we'll see. We'll see. It depends on that,
2: who gets in, who doesn't.
4: We'll what? see who gets in, who gets in when. When this thing actually happens, you know, we had uh, we had our announcement with close to 300 people in an air in an airport hangar uh pete had his announcement in a, in a burger joint with 20 with 20 folks uh and so i think that there's a certainly a difference of energy in campaigns but you know pete's a nice guy i don't have a problem with pete one way or another we're going to have that debate we're going to have that debate about who's going to be able to serve the people of district 19 uh in an efficient manner uh I think that my record speaks for itself, what I've done in the legislature legislature last session in particular on annexation, fighting Republicans, getting them to the position that they needed to be, protect our military bases, protect our state's economy is important. I think that what we've done for veterans is important. And I think even our fight, for appraisal uh caps has has been important appraisal relief and so we're going to work hard we're going to do the things that we need to do we're going to keep working and having work sessions in this community until this election happens Based,
3: based on what we've seen from uh pete's campaign so far he's campaigning on familiarity with this district the experience that he has in this district um, like you said, you've been out there for 16, 18 months now or whatever, do you feel that you've built up a solid enough advantage as as, as someone that people in this district know and have seen in the community uh, that you can overcome that, that, whatever natural advantages he has walking into the race in terms of uh, name recognition and just being a familiar entity to so many people in the district?
4: Yeah, look, I mean, again, we're working, we're identifying problems in communities, we're having work sessions, and we're identifying resources to be able to solve those problems endorsements do matter i know that you know pete has been quoted as saying that they that they don't matter well these are the folks that are trusted by people in their community if you look at brewster county alone the county judge is supportive the county sheriff is supportive, the former district attorney county commissioners the current mayor the past mayor and the list goes on for just about every county in this district it is important to get the trust of people that are trusted That said, we're also talking to folks from the folks behind the kitchen counter, the the, the diner counter, to the county judge. We're talking to everybody in between. We've got events scheduled out for the next six weeks, that we're going
0: to keep working. Let me ask you why you'd want this seat. So you're now one of 150 members of the House. There are 55 Democrats currently. The the over-under for Democrats in the next session is probably 60. The idea is that you'll pick up some seats in this midterm election, given the political environment. The likelihood is that the math in the Senate – is the math in the Senate. You know, you might pick up one seat if you're lucky, if the political environment is exactly right on election day. But more than likely, it's going to be the same 2011 split with the same lieutenant governor that you had in the last session. Is being you in the Senate going to be any more productive than being you in the House? And why would you want that job?
4: Look, the state is changing. And it might not change next session, but the session after that or the session after that. This state is
0: changing. You're building for the future.
4: I, I think that at the end of the day, this is about making sure that people in Senate District 19 get the representation they need. But we also, as a body, as a... As a cumulative approach to getting change having change in government we need to push back against ideas that don't make sense like the bathroom bill ideas that zero out our university uh, campus budgets when that's happening we need to have people have a voice in the senate and it's it's we've lost a little bit of that we need to push back and i hope i aim to be the person that does that
2: is this a safe democratic seat the numbers look fairly you know closer than you would imagine for a you know, a district like this, in some ways it mirrors the, the CD23 seat, in some ways it mirrors the um, Pancho Navarro's seat. The Clinton-Trump race was closer there than it was in some other Democratic districts. Um, the Abbott-Davis race was much closer than it is in most Democratic districts. Do you think there's any chance a Republican could win this?
4: You know, so it's about a 72 percent democratically drawn district. 62 uh, percent of vote is based in Bear County. Yep. Uh, I understand that Carlos hasn't had a substantial lead in, in in the last two times that he's run, and that's part and parcel of the you know of the kind of leadership that he's exhibited. You think that
0: was a Carlos problem, not a Democrat problem? I
4: think it's more of a Carlos problem. But of course, the, the flip
0: of that is that often, if there's a scandal that causes the office holder of a party to have to leave office, as you're presuming mm-hmm. will happen with Senator Oreste the other party can come back and say, look what you got when you went with them before. Right. And that's fair, but I think
4: all of that can be drowned out, if you will, by hard work, determination, communication, relationships, knocking on door to door. Look at what Beto's doing across the state of Texas. And he's doing it because he's got new energy, new ideas, just like yeah. we have. We're trying to tell people that not everything requires a bill at the courthouse. I've been talking to folks in Alpine about the notion of, of, of at least beginning the first steps to a World Heritage Site like we did, we we're we able to do in San Antonio, talking about re-energizing Sol Ross University. We can do things that don't require legislation. And we can do things collaboratively by working with the federal congressman, regardless of which party he's with. yeah, We have to be able to bring back people to work together to solve
0: problems. You mentioned Beto O'Rourke, the candidate for Senate of your party. Will he be the one with the coattails this time? If you look at all the people at the top of the ticket, ordinarily you'd be looking to maybe candidates for governor or people somewhere else on the ballot who might have the strength to pull up people in races that are further down. Is he the one who's going to have the coattails?
4: You know, whatever formula he's doing to drive out people, Beto's doing a great job at it, obviously. I think that long term that the state is changing. And whether it happens now or later, it is changing. What we as Democrats have to do is really incentivize and uh, in, uh, get people in the valley along the border to vote in November. You know, most of their races are had in March. And so there's not much of a contest come November. We yeah. need to get the border to go out there and be energized to vote.
0: Yeah. The calcula- Before we let Representative Gutierrez go, Ross, the calculation is that if Senator Oresti were to resign at some point in the next couple of months, there would be a special election in time for a senator to be seated for the beginning of the 2019 session. Yeah, right? he's
2: a midterm senator. He's not, uh, the arrestee seat is not on the ballot in 2018. I guess
0: I'm asking that the so. law would require a special election be called, right. within, a, this is not Wisconsin, <clears throat> where they're fighting over whether there should be a special no, election. They'll, they'll, for they'll a have Lincoln a special Senate
2: election, right. but you know, the, the question in this race and um, in a different way in Senator Garcia's race, Is, you know, when do you hold the special election and when does that person take over? Are they there in time to take over in the January thing? The other thing for people like you and people like Philip Cortez, if he ends up looking at this or anybody else who looks at it, (coughs) is where in the cycle does a special election fall and what risk does it put? And incumbent, and for their other race. So, you know, if you want to run for the Senate seat, is a free? Is it a freebie, or does it have some political cost to it? And that'll influence the number of candidates. That's right. And,
4: and of course, we have no opposition in November. Right. Uh, I've been unopposed for very many years. It's literally a free shot. It's literally a free shot, one way or another. Um, I think that the calculus is, as far as the, the the law states, that it has to be at the general at the next uh, uniform election date. Right. Unless the governor calls it a, an emergency. And that could happen. And certainly, people in these communities can ask the governor to, to call it an emergency. They could say, hey, we haven't had any representatives. They was never J-
2: jack
0: around with the dates, would they? No, no, <laughs> no, no, never. <laughs> we can have a whole other podcast <laughs> devoted to what is and is not an emergency, That's according right. to governors right. of Texas. <laughs> Whatever he says it is. Uh, Representative Gutierrez, good luck on the race. We look forward to seeing you again at some point. Uh, Thank we'll you see so much. we get further down the path. Thank you. So, we're going to let Thank Representative you. Gutierrez go. Swap you out. Thank you. And Shannon Najmabadi, our higher ed reporter, will join. Uh, Shannon, welcome. Uh, while we're transitioning over to Shannon, let me acknowledge um, another TripCast sponsor here, Health Code. Million Mile Month is a month-long event challenging individuals to achieve a community to log a million miles of activity, walking, running, riding, swimming, etc. cetera, this April. Register today at events.healthcode.org. Shannon, welcome.
1: Thanks for having me. You had a
0: wonderful story that we published yesterday about the challenge for college students around Texas who don't have enough food to eat. We're used to a discussion around food insecurity in K through 12, 60% mm-hmm. of the enrolled students in Texas public schools are on some free or reduced lunch, but there's no similar program for college students.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right, right. Yeah. that's right. Um, so really, this story had been kind of floated to me several times since I started, which is the idea that the cost of college has gone up for students and their parents, as opposed to at the same time that the state support has gone down. And right. what people had been saying to me is that this doesn't just mean that students are graduating with more debt. They're also making a host of lifestyle changes to um, make it affordable for them to stay in college and to afford the cost and to not graduate with loans that are, or debt that's completely astronomical. Right. And one of the ways this manifests, that's the most extreme, is this idea of food insecurity. So students going hungry, or eating erotically, or eating really unhealthily. And this is just kind of like to tamp down on. Right. How R- ramen on noodles food?
0: sounds like a good idea until you actually <laughs> taste them.
1: Well, it's kind of a trope, right. you know, like college students eating free food, going to events right. where there's free food, living yeah, with some. Some of the mates. reaction to
2: this is well, so college students don't have great diets.
1: Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. That's
0: not exactly breaking news, right? right. Yeah.
1: But just to, like put a number on this and how the how it might have changed over time. It's, right. I think that the number, the critical number here is eight thousand dollars, which is the unmet need that the average college student in Texas would have if they're going to a public school. Which is, you take the cost of attending college, tuition and all the cost of living expenses, and you take from that the amount that the family can contribute, and you also take away loans and everything else, and there's still this eight thousand dollar gap. So right. how are students filling that? Like maybe private loans, but then also in cutting back on their expenses.
0: Right. Now the assumption is that the students who come from lower lower socioeconomic status families or communities are going to be the ones most at risk. And not to paint with a broad brush, but you have a high percentage of community college enrollees in particular who are probably at the lower end of the of the economic ladder. Mm-hmm. And so this may disproportionately affect community college students and in okay. turn the Houston Community College District has stepped up with a pilot program that you wrote about that mm-hmm. is attempting to address this problem.
1: That's right. Right. Thank you for the great setup.
0: <laughs> He's good at that, isn't he? Yeah, yeah he can you is. you talk about that program?
1: <laughs> so the Houston Community College system, as far as I can tell, is one of the first uh, schools really around the country to do a project of this scale. They have a partnership with the Houston Food Bank, which is also a pretty uh, progressive organization in this area. And they're offering scholarships to two thousand students, one thousand now, one thousand next semester, where they're getting one hundred and twenty pounds of food each month, donated by the Houston Food Bank. So it's like really at no cost to the school.
0: And these are largely Black and Latino students, right? Largely
1: Black and la- Latino, largely I think like completely low-income students. Right. Um, they had to. It was a lottery system, but they had to fill out some financial paperwork to you know meet certain criteria. And the idea behind it is not just like the idea of you know, food scholarship being kind of a social safety net program, it's more tied to the student's academic performance. So you take HCC. 50% of their students, about uh, about 50% leave year on year. So 50% drop out. And this is really not good for HCC to be putting money into classes for students who aren't going to graduate. And it's pretty bad for the students to put money into school, pay tuition, and then, you know, leave out X number of dollars and also without a degree. So this has been a pretty intractable problem for not just community college, but also, you know, schools like UT Austin, how to get students to the finish line. Right. Right. And maybe this food scholarship program will help the students. I think that's our argument with it. It's like, let's evaluate and see if maybe taking this one burden off our students' shoulders will help them perform better.
0: You know, Ross, this gets back to the larger conversation of affordability in higher ed, which we talk about every... Five months in an odd-numbered year, uh, but not even uh, uh, only those five months. I mean, we talk about it now. Just in the last couple of weeks, the University of Sy- Texas System regents unanimously voted to increase um, the cost of attending UT academic campuses by between just about 1% and 8%. Right. Um, just as we have a conversation at the legislature about public education finance being passed off onto regular folks in the form of, um, of property tax increases, controversial uh, as, well, as, you know, as, it's, uh, in the higher right ed case, it's being passed on to the to families and students. It's weird. We did it with highways. We made toll roads.
2: You know, I mean, right. we do a, we do a lot of the stuff where the state defers, or or uh, slides out of some of the costs that it does by putting it on users. And in the case of colleges, they put it on people paying tuition. In yep. the case of public schools, they put it on, you know, they put more of a load on property taxpayers. In the case of highways, they put it on toll payers. You know, the state has doesn't have the revenue-generating capacity to to pay for all of these things, and they're trying to figure out what to pay for. Well, they could
0: choose to have more money available for higher ed, or they they could could choose to have more revenue generated they chose to. Sure. Um, Mm
2: -hmm. uh, Tax you this way instead of that way, but they've decided to do it this way. And, you know, what it does is move the load on, in in the case of colleges, onto families and onto students who have to decide, okay, I have X number of dollars coming in, I have to pay this stated amount for college, so I have this much left for everything else, and it sounds like food's one of the things that mm-hmm. gets pinched.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and Shannon, you know that the Higher Education Coordinating Board and the governor's office and other state entities have been behind the 60 by 30 mm-hmm. plan to transform higher ed in Texas, a major right. component of which is trying to reduce student debt. This is a conversation mm-hmm. that is already right. ongoing mm-hmm. at the mm-hmm. state mm-hmm. level. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: And I do think, so completely dead on with that macro picture, I also think that this program in particular though, it, it does make some economic sense. It's not necessarily like we should put money towards this, but if you invest this smaller amount up front into giving students food, even though in this case it's a donation, so there is no food, but for other schools that are investing in kind of hunger-related initiatives. I think that their theory, this is what they've told me, is that they'll put this small money in up front, and then down the line it saves them much more money because they're not losing as many students through the the four years that they're there.
2: This is kind of a a piece of the argument that was made for reduced... uh, Breakfast and lunch programs at the federal level is that you know mm-hmm. you can't educate kids who are hungry, so yep. feed
0: them mm-hmm. and then you can and then you can feed their brains. Right, it's a version of the social emo- and emotional learning component at the lower level right. of school that mm-hmm. migrates up to the higher ed level. It's basically all, so it's, all you of those it's piece. sort of the, used to be K through twelve. Now it's yeah. K through sixteen. Sh- Shannon, before we move on from mm-hmm. this topic, uh, <clears throat> I tweeted out a link to this story yesterday. I, I thought it was a really good story and an important topic. And a response came back in the form of a tweet from. Representative Matt Schaefer of Tyler, Republican, Mm -hmm. chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, who said, and now I'm paraphrasing, but I'm close to this, the answer to food insecurity at the college level is get a job. Mm -hmm. That was Representative Schaefer's response to this. What is your response to Representative Schaefer?
1: Well, I'm actually really glad you tweeted that because I thought it's a really important comment about this. Um, And I think we've touched on some of these issues before, which is that the schools that are pursuing this now don't really see it as um, like a non, they don't really see it as like a social service that they're providing. They see it kind of as like an academic investment in students performing well. And I do think also that the students that are most affected by food insecurity are also, as you pointed out, community colleges, community college students who also are more likely to have a job. I mean,
0: the reality is a lot of the people we're yeah. talking about have jobs already.
1: Right. right. And I think that, not to pull out another number, but the number that I heard that I think is probably the best guess of you know, putting the cost of college into context, is that a student going to a public college today without any loans, without um, financial aid, would have to work 62 hours a week to pay their way through. So, you know, if you talk about how important it is to have a job, a lot of these students have jobs and they're trying to do well in school, and it's not really possible for them.
0: Well, it's a great story and an important topic, and thank you very much for for your reporting on it. Thank you. Um, I thought we would spend the balance of our time group talking about the (coughs) political environment in Texas through the lens of the news of this morning before 8 a.m., not the we're going to bomb Syria with nice what did he tweet? Missiles. What did he tra- <laughs> no, He did. No, no, there were there were tweets. There are always tweets. There were <laughs> tweets today, but uh, more more importantly, the news that Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the U.S. House from Wisconsin, is going to uh, retire after this term, and that we're going to have a, a race for Speaker. We're going to have a race for speaker, both at the national level and in Texas, by the way, heading into 2019. I love that. Yeah. But that this is being taken by some as a sign that Speaker Ryan sees the handwriting on the wall, Patrick, and that the likelihood of the Republicans being able to retain control of the U.S. House uh, is not very high, not a very high likelihood. Um, and so, I want to ask what that means for your thinking about the races in Texas. We already knew that we have a more competitive environment on the congressional ballot this fall in Texas than we typically do. What is the state of play right now?
3: Yeah, I mean, things are still—the kind of expanded congressional map in Texas, I think, is, is still intact. I mean, going into the cycle, you had the DCCC target two more seats than they usually do, two more Republican-held right. seats. The,
0: th- the three that they were targeting, just so everyone knows, were the session seat in Dallas, the Heard seat in San Antonio, and the Culberson seat in Houston. And they added Correct. the John Carter seat in Round Rock, and they added the Lamar Smith seat in San
3: Diego. Yeah, and I was going to say they ad- they've they since added two more seats, so they technically have these uh, a list of five seats in Texas that they're targeting— I think the focus will still uh, by and large beyond those three original seats that they uh, put on their list. The other two and I you know I think are somewhat of a reach for them at this point, um, but there's still a lot of money and enthusiasm uh, happening in those two other districts um, and Speaking of money, I mean one of the really early signs that these districts were in play was some of the fundraising that we saw from democratic candidates and it really hasn't slowed down honestly um, you've seen some of these uh, democratic congressional candidates and republican republican held districts head into their runoffs with some very strong fundraising numbers gino ortiz jones who we had on the the podcast last week $700,000 in the, in the, in the
0: right. first
3: quarter right. um uh, Lizzie Fletcher, who's run one of the Democrats in the runoff uh, for the Culperson seat, uh, over a half a million dollars. And so um, I think that it's, it's you know, the, at least the money is continuing to show that these are these are very competitive and in-play races. Right. Right. Um, now you get to, you know, Ryan's retirement, and what does that mean for Texas necessarily? Um, I think that there's a story there within the Texas delegation about whether this creates any uh, leadership openings that upward, members upward of the Upward mobility. Mobility. Speaker, upper mobility. Speaker
2: Brady or something like sure,
3: that? Sure, <laughs> exactly. Right. I don't know if exactly— Speaker, but name one. Spe- yeah. Speaker Brady clearly will have to climb yeah. over Speaker McCarthy
0: probably. Well, rather, sure.
3: yeah. Yeah. yeah, clearly there's going to be a leadership <laughs> shuffle in the House in, in Washington uh, after Paul steps down. Um, after, what you, Paul, after Paul steps down? Yeah. Steps <laughs> My dear friend Paul what, steps what, down. What is he, your drinking buddy? Uh, what after are you doing? Paul Ryan steps down. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure that there's going to be, a, a, you know, there are some of the Texas delegation that will will right. look longingly now at Now, on the subject, spots.
0: before we bring Ross in on this, on the subject of Speaker Ryan and Texas, he was just in town not a week ago. He dragged his sack. He dragged his sack. <laughs> $4 million he left with. He right. raised $4 million at a donor retreat that featured, it turned out, Chief of Staff John Kelly from the White House, who came down and did a presentation to the assembled group.
3: Yeah, right. to, to be clear, there, there, he raised about uh, close to four million dollars through a series of fundraisers yeah. in Dallas, San Antonio, Austin, and Corpus Christi. Yeah. The donor retreat that was held over the course of three days in Austin actually wasn't a, a fundraiser per se, but it was, was part for, of the, sw- yeah, the fundraising for, swing
0: that
2: he did. Yeah, right. but exactly. Check, it was part of it. Were written just the same. Right. Yeah.
3: <laughs> sure, and so and, and that was uh, you know the purpose of that retreat. Um, he has them once or twice a year in, in different cities with uh, you know group of, of uh, some of the the biggest. Republican Party donors uh, was to talk about politics and to talk right. about the the midterm election and, and what needs to be done to hold on to the the House majority.
0: Right, R- Ross, you ha- again institutional historian, old, <laughs>
3: uh, you know what <laughs> the so what the
0: modern history of the congressional map is in Texas. The Will Hurd seat in San Antonio has really been for the last several cycles the only one that has been in play. Right, the fact that we have five that we're talking about openly as potentially in play is itself a major game change versus previous cycles. On the other hand, we are talking about Democrats. We right. are talking about Texas. They're right. perfectly capable of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory here. Well, you know, the odds right. are against them. The maps are against them. The maps
2: are well-drawn, except for the 23 map. That's a that that's a significant swing district. And the way the speaker's race will play in this, if at all, is, you know, how are you going to vote for the next speaker? In five minutes, Paul Ryan's not going to be the news. It's right. going to be who's next. And the who's next question could be influential in a race where, you know, the voters of a district might not agree with where their Republican incumbent in these districts wants to go. If John Carter says, I'm with so-and-so, and the uh, voters in his district
0: say, I don't yeah. know
2: about that, they might look at somebody
0: else. But the reverse, Patrick, is also true. Uh, in the Congressional District 21 race, the Democratic runoff between Mary Wil- it's Mary Wilson, Mary Wilson right. and Joseph Kopser— right. Uh, you wrote about this or tweeted about this in the last couple of days, that Mary Wilson has said that if she's elected to that congressional seat, if she wins the runoff and then is elected to the seat, she is for Nancy Pelosi to be speaker. Right, yeah. Right? Joseph Copsarist is saying basically, well, I want to see who is, who's on the ballot. This, sure. There's a version of this conversation going on right now across the Democratic field for Congress mm-hmm. in Texas. There are certain people who have said, I'm not for Nancy Pelosi, but mostly it's people who have said... I wanna wait and see what happens.
3: Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen that answer in, in every single competitive Democratic race, but from what we've seen so far, you mentioned the, the wilson are exchange yes, yesterday. There, there's It's really kind of a scattered mixed bag about whether some of these candidates would be for Nancy Pelosi or what the alternative would be. Right. Um, I, somewhat ironically, uh, one thing that stood out to me was Jay Hoolings, who was running for Will Herdsey, one of the Democrats running for Jay Herdsey. Finished um, in
0: fourth in that. He, he had, had come out.
3: Right uh, you know, I had actually asked him at an event months before the primary, You know. Would you support Nancy Pelosi? And he pretty bluntly said no, I don't know if he said no, but he said, I think it's time for a new leadership change. It basically said that he'd be open to supporting a challenger to her an alternative to her. And he ended up not even making the runoff, as we've talked about before. And the next day at her, uh, or the next day at her um, weekly press conference, Nancy Pelosi was asked about all these candidates across the country, uh, you know, <laughs> uneasy about supporting her, and she said, "Well, there was some guy in Texas who said he wouldn't support me, and he lost. So well, I don't I think it's a, a, I made a poster some, child of Jay Some, Ulin, some so guy. It's yeah, probably so, I the mean, most attention. Jay really that Ulin dynamic that whole race. out, but it's really <laughs> <Right>. scattered across <laughs> the. Uh, I think across the races I've seen. Well, so and far.
0: the fact is, this has even come up in this, in the
3: Senate race.
0: Uh, in that Beto O'Rourke has been asked a version of the same question, right? right. And, you know, it's been, well, right. on? Right. Kind of on tender hooks. Right. So, good. Um, Bobby, I think we're going to call it here. What do you think? That work for you? He's not even, Bobby's playing Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> on his computer, he doesn't actually care. <laughs> um, okay, uh, well, this has uh, been a really great tripcast. I want to thank our uh, guest, Roland Gutierrez, State Representative of San Antonio, Shannon Najmabadi, our higher ed reporter, of course, Ross uh, and, and Patrick. Uh, and all of you who've tuned in today to listen to the TribCast. If you like the TribCast, if you like listening to it every week, please do us a favor. Go on to iTunes. Give us a positive review. No negative reviews, please. <laughs> We're not beneath or above Just asking talk about for about positive reviews. Um, the reality is that those ratings help us get in front of listeners like you, and we want more listeners, not fewer, completely consistent with the Tribune's mission. And speaking of our mission, if you value the work of our nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom, please consider making a donation at support.texastribune.org. Now more than ever on a day when the world blows up before 8 (laughs) a.m. You need a reliable source of information. and The Texas Tribune has been providing that for more than eight years and with your help we'll continue providing that for many many years to come. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music Uh, and on behalf of uh, Patrick, Ross, Shannon, Bobby, Todd, Michael, Annie, the King family, the Waltons family. I mean, who else do I have to thank Good in this night John damn Boy. thing? Good night, John Boy. Um, and uh, thank God Emily will be back next week. Uh, my name is Evan Smith, and I appreciate you being here. Thanks for Texas listening.
2: Is talking. Texas talking. Texas
3: talking. Texas talking. Texas talk-
2: Me, 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 hello.